0: You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist.
1: Welcome to episode number 97 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Chris Killam is today's guest on the podcast and Chris is a medicine hunter, an author and an educator. Chris has conducted medicinal plant research in over 45 countries and he works with companies to develop and popularize traditional plant-based food and medicinal products into market successes. Uh, some examples of these products are kava, maca, rhodiola, schisandra, Tamanu oil, cat's claw, dragon's blood, uh, ayahuasca and and, uh, hundreds of other plants. And Chris has also worked to bridge worlds, regularly sharing information about other cultures through presentations and the media. He's appeared in uh, over 1500 radio programs and in more than 500 TV programs worldwide. CNN calls Chris the Indiana Jones of natural medicine. Thanks for being on the podcast.
2: Sure, my great pleasure.
1: Uh, please tell the listeners who you are in your own words.
2: Sure. My name is Chris Killam and I'm known as the medicine hunter. I travel around the world investigating natural plant-based men, uh, remedies, uh, traditional foods, uh, traditional cultures and also psychoactive uh, plants throughout, you know, throughout all of nature from Siberia to the Amazon.
1: What's your purpose in uh, doing this?
2: Well, I, I want to accomplish a number of things. I mean, I want to bring to people uh, more globally uh, the the beneficial treasures of nature and help them to steer away from toxic drugs and from therapies that might be more damaging than helpful. And also... Um, you know, engaging in this, I I actually engage in trade and it enables me to work on projects that are environmentally sustainable and that provide more benefits to the native people who are doing the hard work of harvesting or or whatever it is that they're up to. So I'm actually trying to accomplish a number of things at the same time. And in the case of uh, psychoactive plants specifically, I'm you know, keenly interested in the spirituality and the kind of, you know, the cosmologies of all of these different cultures around the world and how they approach their knowledge uh, in many instances through the direct experiences provided by psychoactive plants and fungi.
1: So how did all this start for you? Was it intentional or did you slip into all of this on a banana peel?
2: Well, I I think in a way, uh, culturally, we sort of slipped on a banana peel. I, I was a hippie in the 60s, and I, along with my teenaged friends, Discovered natural foods and yoga and LSD and cannabis and uh, a very, very different way of living than what our parents, who were pretty much in the Eisenhower era of sort of conformity and dullness, uh, were up to. And that uh led a lot of us into exploration of herbs and in my case i was pretty fascinated by them and i didn't know anything at all i would prowl around uh, boston's chinatown in the apothecaries and i hadn't a clue what i was looking at but i was fascinated nonetheless and i'd i'd buy stuff you know i'd buy analgesic balms and things and take them home and go see kung fu movies in this crappy crappy theater that was a porno theater at night. And, um, that was kind of the beginning of it. You know, it was just grousing around. I, I think that what happens in many instances in life is that the future casts a long shadow over the present. And I think in the case of my earlier days, becoming familiar with herbs when I knew nothing and really had no good teachers available to me. um, It was really some sort of a pull into the future, uh, a path that I'm meant to take to satisfy a lot of different interests.
1: Most contemporary or mainstream medicine comes from plants in the beginning, but they've synthesized them these days. So are you trying to make medicine more in the way it used to be?
2: Well, you know... Plants, natural plants remain the the most widely used category of medicines in the world to this day. You know, like 85% of the world's population uses some form of plant medicine, whether it's a eucalyptus cough drop or, you know, cat's claw from the Amazon to shrink reproductive tumors. Um, and in the case, you know, you bring up a couple of points here, Alex. I mean, in the case of... Um, Uh, The pharmaceutical companies, their profits derive solely from whatever they can patent, and they can't patent plants, and they can't patent any compound that's been previously published in a plant. So they have to make a compound that is similar to something that they find in a plant. And in most cases when they do that, they wind up making a compound that unfortunately in its purity and in, and in its alteration is toxic. Um, so what I, what I want is for people to get highly beneficial very well-made, natural remedies, and to participate in a whole chain of bridging worlds, you know, uh, to the Amazon, to the South Pacific, to Africa, whatever it is.
1: One of the best cancer defense medicines is Una de Gato, this bark that you can drink. And last year where I live, uh, they've made it uh, illegal.
2: Well, you know, that's, that's just foolish and ironic. And, you know, it makes no sense. I mean, in Austria, for example, Unia de Gato, cat's claw extract, is a pharmaceutical. Uh, it's sold, its primary use is for um, rheumatoid arthritis. And it's also a um, chemotherapeutic agent in cases of reproductive cancers. So just a few borders over, really, you've got a country treating it very differently. And in other you know, EU countries, it's, diff- it's treated differently still. you know, it's an herbal supplement. So you know, regulations are very bizarre, but the, the fact remains, you brought up a very good plant. It's a powerful powerful natural remedy. It's profoundly anti-inflammatory. It's really cleansing and detoxifying. It's protective in lots of ways, internally and topically. And uh, there's gobs of research on uña de gato or cat's claws. So, um, you know, it's, it's a classic, classic plant medicine. So how do you get that out of the Amazon in a way that doesn't just totally devastate um, the environment, you know, and that's the tricky part with this, is is figuring out ways of trade or ways of being active um, in environments that by their very nature are really, really difficult to work in.
1: I can understand if they made it illegal if you could get high on it, but it's just a straight-up medicine. Um, but you bring up a good point because when I was in the Amazon, I discovered some amazing fruit I'd not encountered before, and my first reaction was that it should be imported to Europe, and my second reaction was that no, no, that's a bad idea because then we would have to cut down the rainforest to make these large farms.
2: Yeah, and, and those are the kinds of um, you know choices that people make. I mean, for example, you know, in, in kind of sharp contrast to that you know, I think well thought out position, you've got the acai industry, uh, you know, in, in Eastern and Northern Brazil where there are just millions of wild acai palms. And so what has happened is as, as a result of popularity of uh, acai here, that's become a huge, huge fruit. And the Harvesting and selling of it supports tens of thousands of Amazonian families who previously, you know, didn't have a comparable income. So there are times when uh, it doesn't make sense because, as you'd say, you'd have to plant vast plantations, and there are other times when it does. and And these are the considerations that go into, you know, choosing to popularize uh, one plant or one food over another.
1: These days, the Amazon is probably the most famous when it comes to medicine plants, thanks to ayahuasca. And you also have uh, Central Africa with iboga, although that is still not as mainstream. Uh, But you travel all over the world, so what other good plant medicines exist in other parts of the world?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I've been very fortunate uh, over, you know, the past couple of decades to work in about 45 countries around the world. Um, Some of the unusual ones include Vanuatu South Pacific, which is way, way out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and is very native and tribal and a place that I uh, spent a lot of time working on, uh, especially with Kava. Uh, for about ten years or so, and, and became a chief there, and firewalked there, and you know, my my whole idea is to go deep in uh, to these places, not to try to go native. I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm from the suburbs outside of Boston. You know, I make no pretense of being a native, anything other than a native suburbanite, but. I think that going into these cultures and and be willing, you know, being willing and, and enthusiastic to do whatever they're doing. I mean, if they're barefoot, I'm barefoot. If they walk to the waterfall, I walk to the waterfall. If they're firewalking, well, then I'm firewalking. And, um, you know, that. So in that culture, I, I had amazing experiences. I've been a few times uh, in the far uh, northwestern part of China and Siberia, um, chasing down rhodiola, which is one of the great herbal remedies of all time. Very good for the brain and stamina and endurance and cardiovascular and sexual health. Just remarkable. Uh, Really rugged environment. Uh, I've been You know, worked in Ivory Coast and even recently uh, did a project in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, That was, um, it was good to go there, uh, but I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. Uh, This is a devastated, broken country with uh, staggering poverty and a lot of crime and a lot of desperate people who don't have the basics and a very small number of foreigners who are running things like electricity and and phone and and basic utilities who uh... kind of have to live in protected compounds it's weird but we went out into uh, kind of the far out areas into villages and met up with uh, people who knew a lot about the medicinal plants of those regions and hiked in the forest with them and, uh, you know, slogged our way through swamps and just kind of did what you do out there. And, uh, you know, this is all part of exploring, you know, not only exploring the medicinal plant riches of the world and figuring out how to engage in trade so that everybody wins and it's ethical. But also, uh, you know, for me, the education's priceless because I I get to make real contact and and do, you know, wonderful things with people I would never, ever meet otherwise. So it's, it's been incredibly rewarding that way.
1: I know quite. A great deal about the congo and i think i would rather go to afghanistan as far as safety is concerned in the last 20 years more people have been murdered in the congo than was ever murdered in Auschwitz. Uh, so um, you know and and there's nothing on the news about it
2: congo sucks there's no question about it it's just like why would anybody go there but you know um and i'm not a I'm not a danger seeker, I'm not a thrill seeker, but sometimes I find myself in sketchy places and um you know that's also part of the exploration is is seeing that side of humanity and society and and hopefully you know having it all work out just fine.
1: I always think it's ironic because the reason it's so messed up in the Congo is because they have this natural resource coltan that is used in electronic products so you know kids are enslaved and die mining for this mineral just so kids in the West can play video games
2: no, it's hideous. I mean, so many of these social equations are just unjust in every conceivable way. You know, people pitching themselves out of uh, you know manufacturing facility windows to end their miserable lives. Who are making, yeah, as you said, you know, making and you know iPhones or whatever the latest Samsung Galaxy or something. Uh, you know, th- there are so many there are so many inequities in the world and. You know, I tend to focus, while paying attention to as many of of these issues as I can, I I tend to focus on those things that I can most directly impact. And uh, in small ways and in a lot of different projects, uh, maybe make a difference with native communities, help to preserve some natural environment as a result of trade, and just, uh, you know, kind of hopefully give more than I take.
1: It's gone too far now for our modern society to go fully native. And uh, not everything in indigenous culture is good, although I think they have a lot of things that we could learn from. So in your opinion, what are the things in such cultures that would be good for us in the Western world to adopt?
2: Well, certainly, I mean... Look, Native people have a lot of things figured out, but they don't have everything figured out. I mean, they don't have sanitation and hygiene figured out. They really don't. And that's why they die of diseases of hygiene. You know, they don't have certain things figured out because they're in a previous stage of our development, you know, sort of globally in certain ways. Uh, But what they do well often is rely on nature because that's what they've got. And uh, I think that if we can through education, through travel, uh, through more thoughtful media about, um, you know, cultures all around the world, I I think a lot of this boils down to kind of bridging worlds. Uh, People can certainly take advantage of natural remedies plant-based remedies uh, in ways that are really meaningful to their health and support uh, people in other cultures in doing so to some extent and that that's a very cool equation that's a positive equation
1: do you have a favorite place you've been to where you really felt at home
2: well in terms of, you know, it's funny, uh, I, I get asked that a lot, understandably. And I, I certainly have spent more time in the Amazon than any place. So there's a familiarity there, you know, when I'm back in in Iquitos or Pucallpa, and I'm heading out, you know, on the river someplace to go to a community. Uh, I mean, I always feel like, oh, yeah, this is great. It's good to be back. So from a sentimental standpoint, probably the Amazon. And and though I've worked in the Brazilian and Ecuadorian Amazons, uh, you know, my heart is very much in the Peruvian Amazon. Uh, So there for sure. But, you know, I feel welcome, fortunately, pretty much everywhere I go. And so, um, you know, I've had phenomenal experiences around the world. I mean, treated just massively beautifully in my repeated, uh, projects in Morocco and, um, boy, you know, all over China, I just got back from Sichuan province in China and remarkably enough, we hit communities there that did not ever get foreigners. So none of the children had seen non Chinese before. And uh, that was a total trip, you know, there we were just hanging with them and taking pictures and basically completely disrupting their day. And everybody loved it. You know, the whole community turned out for, uh, for our little group that was shooting, actually shooting videos of tea plantations in the mountains there. So, you know, these experiences happen. And I think it's the um, the contact with people in really positive, you know, uh, ways is, is the richest part of all of this work for me.
1: I never been to China myself, so could you talk a bit about what China is like?
2: Well, it, it depends where you go. I mean, if you're driving from the outskirts of Shanghai into the center of the city, you're going to be just, Astonished and appalled by the gigantic nature of this, you know, 23 million person city, Uh, you will find the air awful. Uh, but go to Beijing and it's way worse. Go to Nanjing and you can't see two blocks down the road. You know, every single hotel room provides two gas masks. And I don't mean those little gauzy surgical things that are popular among Japanese tourists. I mean, real, you know, full on gas masks, every hotel room. Um, so when you get a look at that kind of apocalyptic horror, uh, you just go oh man this is just the worst thing on earth and then you get out into other parts of the country like xinjiang the farthest northwest which is so staggeringly beautiful with its mountain ranges and its you know unusual one of a kind grasslands and it's just astonishing and and sichuan uh Sichuan was clean. The cities were clean and friendly. Uh, There wasn't that pollution. The mountains were staggering. The people were incredibly hospitable. The food just made me want to cry. It was so good. Um, You know, everything about it was wonderful. So the complex answer to your question is that it depends on where you go. You go into the big cities, you have to expect the full on horror of just, you know, over crammed in population uh, with all of the intake and output and exhaust and pollution that that many people generate, but there are lots of places in China that are gorgeous.
1: Has China adopted a capitalistic society, or is it still very communistic?
2: No, you don't. You know, in so many places, you don't really notice any, you know, anything that suggests communism to any extent i mean if you go to beijing you know the center of the city is this walled-in city for the commie party bosses who live in these splendid gigantic mansions i mean it's been a farce forever but when you get out there into the rest of china no i mean you you go into shanghai and there's the the ritz carlton and the intercontinental and uh you know all of the fine hotel chains and all of the same ridiculous luxury brands coach gucci whatever ralph lauren you name it it goes on you know rolex it goes on and on forever in all of their malls and um you know i mean it's you're going to see that in shanghai and beijing and hangzhou and you're not going to see that in uh say uh i don't know you know a room key out in um uh, Xinjiang, (laughs) but they, they have all the same crap, you know, they've got, uh, our donut shops and fast food and Kentucky fried chicken is probably the, in terms of the number of restaurants, they're probably the single most popular chain of restaurants throughout all of China. So they're gobbling up our crap at the same time that they have a lot to offer as a culture.
1: You travel to all these places and meet all these different indigenous cultures, and many of them have their own unique language, so how do you manage to communicate?
2: (laughs) Well, you know, I have spent a lot of time uh, being in the company of people whose language I didn't understand at all. I'm actually just like totally inured to that at this point, but um, I I always have access to or, or typically am side by side with somebody or a couple of somebodies who can penetrate those uh, tangulations of language. You know, usually there is some sort of a national language that people uh, know, but if there isn't, then we might have to have two people, you know, to translate, say, from English to Spanish to Spanish to whatever, a Shaninka, and then back and forth. But, but, you know, we've always gotten it done. I, I don't do this work by myself. Every, every country I go to, I wind up with a team. And they uh, make things happen every bit as much as I do. I mean, my arrival there and work there is why they assemble for sure. But, you know, I rely on a lot of talented people out there, uh, biologists and herbal traders and uh, people of all different types of skills who really make my expeditions uh, productive and and you know worth worth engaging in.
1: So, are you working for a company or a charity? Uh, basically, what's behind your expeditions?
2: Well, I, I don't. You know, I uh, when I create trade, it's for other companies. I don't actually do it for myself. I've always been a consultant. I've always been somebody paid to go out and find the stuff, whatever the stuff is. And, um, you know, I tried my hand at it with uh, some pharmaceutical companies decades ago who promised to be different and they weren't. And I excluded that sector uh, entirely from my professional activities. You know, I do this a lot for um, large herbal processing companies. Uh, I've been hired by governments from time to time. Uh, some of the major cosmetic companies have been my clients, you know. So I, I basically do this consulting. And now I have some products as well some herbal products, finished herbal products. But uh, when I do. Um, You know, when I go out and establish a chain of trade, it's usually for some ingredient manufacturing company, if that makes any sense.
1: What has been the best trade that you've done that has done the most good?
2: Yeah, I I think I can say that. I think that um, my involvement in maca from the Peruvian Andes has been the most rewarding project for the longest period of time. I got involved with Maka in 1998, uh, you know, met a trader down there in Peru named Sergio. And he, he and I have been working together ever since. And not only have we been able to very substantially popularize the entire category globally, um, I mean, I've done enormous work in that regard, just hundreds of seminars and TV programs and radio programs and magazine articles and newspaper articles promoting Maka. It's been a huge success. And, um, you know, we also, uh, the same trader, Sergio and I have explored about, I don't know, 14 or 15 of the Amazonian rivers and have stayed with numerous different tribal peoples in various native villages and, you know, um, adventured pretty far into places. And uh, that has yielded a whole bunch of other botanicals. So I'd say that the Maca project has been the most uh, beneficial, not only in terms of the results with regard to Maca, uh... but also with regard to other things that have come from that
1: Uh, what is uh, maca
2: sure sure sorry uh... maca is a turnip like root uh... that grows very very high up very high altitude uh... you know three to three to five thousand meters base or three to four and a half thousand meters very high up in the andes mountains in peru and it's a a traditional food that's been used for about two thousand years uh... it's highly nutritious it has uh... novel compounds that enhance energy and stamina and endurance and sexual and reproductive function and it's quite legendary And they use it up there to make, you know, breads and baked goods and soups and stews and drinks and and all kinds of foods, hot and cold. And extracts of it uh, have been made in the United States and Europe and South America and sold in nutritional supplements. So you kind of have different ways to go with maca. But it's always, uh, the roots are always dried and typically powdered and then used from there. And um, the trade in Maka has greatly benefited the economy of people who live pretty much like they're on the surface of the moon. I mean, when you go into a community that's fourteen and a half thousand or fifteen thousand feet up, you know, from sea level, uh, you know, the vegetation's totally different. There are no trees. There are high winds. It might hail on the best days of summer. Uh, it's a harsh and starkly beautiful environment, and the people are very, very hardy and uh, hardworking. So it, it, it's it's pretty phenomenal. The whole the whole circumstance around maca, which itself is a true true superfood.
1: Have you ever done anything like this uh, locally? I mean, you have uh, native cultures in North America, even if it's been mostly destroyed.
2: Well, you know, in point of fact, um, black currants, for example, are uh, indigenous to or endemic to uh, North America. And um, I have worked on promoting black currant juice, which is one of the most profoundly beneficial and high antioxidant fruit juices. Um, I've done some promotion around aronia, which is... uh, also a North American berry, uh, primarily being cultivated in the West now, but a, a real tradition uh, in the United States, you know, used a lot and used by Native people. Um, and and certainly there are herbs uh, like echinacea, for example, which... Um, you know, originate from here that I've worked with and and have helped to promote. Uh, But I do most of my work outside of the US and, um, you know, the regions vary according to the plants that I'm looking for.
1: All indigenous cultures around the world have their own, I guess you could call it religion, but have you noticed anything that they all share, some common belief?
2: oh you know i don't know that so no i mean i don't think so um how people conceive of their place in the world and the invisible factors and forces that seemingly surround us all uh, and may have like conscious identity I i think it's way 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 super varied out there you know, for some cultures, it's all about ancestors, you know, for some cultures, it has to do with, you know, going into the land of the dead for other, you know, others, it, it, it's just, com- you know, it has to do with um, completely other things, you know, journeying to other dimensions or, or you know, worshipping a certain figure or um you know, iconic entity of some kind. It's it's way too varied. I don't think they're... I think the only commonality is that for the most part, around the world, people have a, a way, a cosmology, a spirituality to describe the lives they're living.
1: What do you think about this debate about contacting those tribes that have been discovered?
2: Well, first of all, those tribes have discovered us. They know about us. Um, there are intermediary tribes who occasionally have, have contact with the so-called you know, uncontacted tribes. And those people know fully well that we're out here. They just don't want any part of us. They've also seen and heard devastation because it's a mess out there in the Amazon and in the rainforests of the world. I mean you know, Sting and the other rockers, whose work I think is just totally amazing, did not stop the devastation of the Amazon rainforest. Um, These tribes don't want to be contacted, and it's really uh, about vanity if we choose to do so anyway, if we choose to intrude on their very fragile lives, maybe bringing them diseases uh, to which they have no resistance that we don't even know we carry. Uh, which is typical and common when that when uncontacted people get contacted. Um, there's no reason to do it if they at some point you know we there was a, a tribe what was it last year or the year before that did in fact just walk out of the forest uh, previously uncontacted it it made the news and um, they were pretty much on the ropes and they actually needed help so. We may see more of that, you know, as as we diminish wildlife throughout the forest by taking, you know, in in the case of the Amazon, up to thirty million illegally taken animals every year. Uh, We wipe out the hunting and the sustainable, you know, consumption of protein for uh, native people and. Uh, with logging and with petro exploration and gold exploration, which pollutes rivers that they might rely on for fish and for potable drinking water and for bathing, et cetera, um, you know, we have already created disasters and problems for them that cut right to the heart of their basic survival.
1: I still think it's amazing that there still are people who exist unknown to most of the human race and plants and animals in the rainforest and in the ocean that we still haven't got a clue about. Even though this planet seems smaller than it's ever seen before, uh, there are still things unknown out there. I think that's pretty cool.
2: Yeah, that's true. That's true. And even plants, for example, that we do know that are in use may have entirely other uses that simply haven't been found yet. I mean, we can't assume that native people figured out every use for a plant. They may well have, but then again, they might not have. And it might take some modern inquiry into plants that we're used to, to go, oh my god, look at this, look at what peppermint does, we never knew. I, I, I think there are a lot of discoveries with the familiar to be made as well as with the completely unfamiliar.
1: What do you think about how popular ayahuasca has become?
2: Well, I, I think that the popularity of ayahuasca is almost entirely a very, very good thing. Um, if you consider it from the standpoint of shamanism, shamanism, by pretty much every anthropologist's account and, and the account of anybody who's really spent time, let's say in, in this instance in the Amazon rainforest, shamanism was completely on the decline. And now, thanks to the uh, popularization of ayahuasca ceremonies um, among Non native people, so people from the US, Europeans, Asians, Africans, you know, people coming over from different places, Um, there has been a kind of profound and reasonably widespread resurgence in shamanism. People say, hey, you know, maybe I won't go to the city and become a taxi driver. Maybe I'll stay and learn from my grandmother and my father. Because this looks like something that, you know, I could actually support a family, I could remain in my community, I could fish where I like to. So, one of the big benefits that has come out of this has been the resurgence of shamanism and with it the uh, forwarding of knowledge about the use of a great, great many. Amazonian medicinal plants that are part and parcel of the shamanic traditions of the Shipibo and the Ashanika and mestizos. It's just kind of a, a great thing. I think from the standpoint of healing, uh, ayahuasca, and I, I write about this extensively in my book, you know, the Ayahuasca Test Pilots Handbook, uh, ayahuasca is... Quite possibly the single greatest healing agent we've ever seen. And it may possibly be the most thorough and broad uh, healing agent on earth. So for people to, you know, I I go down there. I've been bringing people down to the Amazon to drink for 10 years. And so many of them have had life-changing experiences that, You know, in some instances have shaken them completely to their cores, but on the other hand have enabled them to completely walk away from chronic fatigue, depression, drug dependence, the trauma of all kinds of earlier life abuse, physical, sexual, etc., mental, emotional um, people who were in the military and, and got scrambled by the sheer horror of that. Folks with chronic conditions, stomach aches, headaches, insomnia, um, you know, food uh, like you know, bad problems with food, anorexia, who are are then able to resolve these things and move on. This is a staggering medicine, and and there are certainly. Circumstances that arise in the ayahuasca scene, you know, some shamans that take advantage of people unduly, which totally sucks or um, centers that are run poorly or whatever, any number of things. But overall, I think it's a staggeringly positive thing. And I don't disagree with the take that many people have that this is the spirit of the ayahuasca reaching out at this time and captivating a great many of us far and wide.
1: Well, statistically, it's a greater risk of dying by falling over than from drinking ayahuasca.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> far far more people trip and fall and kill themselves than will ever die from ayahuasca, for sure. Uh, ayahuasca itself, to the best of our knowledge, has never killed anybody. Uh, Towe, an admixture plant, brugmansia, is its botanical name, uh, which is highly toxic, has... Uh, We know that a few people have died in ayahuasca centers as a result of drinking very, very strong preparations of tobacco, which is one of the most toxic plants on earth. these are mistakes. These are things that should never happen. You know, the unscrupulous shaman who uh, overloads somebody too much with uh, Toei and they wind up dying. I mean, it's just, it, that's a horrible thing that taints the scene. But ayahuasca itself has proven uh, safe. I mean, it may scare the absolute daylights out of you at times, but it's not going to kill you.
1: When I first heard about ayahuasca seven, eight years ago, I thought, how the heck am I going to figure out how to experience this? But now I can just go online and find as many retreats as I want.
2: Well, yes. Uh, and, you know, uh, what? an interesting that's hap- thing that's happening now, I, 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 it's fair to say that uh, Iquitos, Peru, is kind of the center of the South American ayahuasca scene. There's ayahuasca all over South America and in, in Brazil and in Ecuador, but Iquitos is kind of like the Mecca of ayahuasca. But most of the shamans who practice outside of the Iquitos area actually come from about a 1,000 miles south, uh, outside of the city of Puculpa, which is the other Peruvian river city. And that's now starting to kind of come up. Uh, Centers are sprouting up there finally. And some of the shamans that would otherwise leave their family for months at a time and go up to work in Iquitos are now staying there. So I'll be going down there in a few weeks to uh, spend some time with some shamans and uh, dive deeper into the medicine and find out, you know... uh, I, I'm in and out of Puculpa a lot, but find out what's really happening with the sh- shamanic scene down there.
1: It's a very powerful healing plant for sure. I mean, I went to the Amazon to experience, experience it out of curiosity. I never expected it to start healing me. and that That caught me completely by surprise.
2: Yeah, and, and that's why they call it la medicina, the medicine. I mean, you know, I heard I heard a Hawaiian uh, elder say a wonderful thing years ago. He said, true healing puts into order the body, mind, and spirit with the past, present, and future. So if you think about healing in that broad a way, Uh, There are so many ways that we can all be healed. We can all be more whole. We can all be more well and integrated. And um, ayahuasca, while it's certainly not a cure-all, provides insights and spontaneous healings and deep dives into places that, enable us to resolve things maybe we've dragged around our whole lives in a way that nothing else really does so uh, I'm grateful and glad that it's uh, increased in popularity and I'm not at all surprised that uh, conservative people may express alarm over it because that's what they're there to do.
1: Yeah I didn't realize what an asshole I'd been until I drank it.
2: (laughs) That's funny, that's funny but you know I, I, I I, I once, uh, was in ceremony, uh, the guy on the mat beside me, um, you know, we had this, we had this particular night in ceremony together. And the next day I said, Hey, you know, what happened to you? And he says, well, I got to the, the gates of the spirit world and these two giant, uh, godlike characters, you know, I said, Hey, I want to go in. And they said, no. And they spent the next couple of hours showing me every way that I'd hurt or offended anybody in my life. And, um, they said, you know, when you, if you fix this, you come back, we'll let you in. And, uh, he said, you know, it was remarkable because I'm 35 years old. What if this had happened to me decades from now? He said, I can do something about this. So even when ayahuasca shows us, some terribly unflattering uh and unadmirable things about ourselves because we all have them uh it gives us uh ways and insights into uh doing something better than that and i think that's the the magic and the marvel of ayahuasca as a medicine
1: it also had this effect on me that before ayahuasca i thought i knew everything and after i become way more humble like um you know i really didn't know nothing
2: sure 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 it's a profound profound medicine and um you know i i've been in such a a state of awe in the medicine so many times and and um <clears throat> i love that you know the the vastness of the universe or in and around us just <clears throat> fully evident in every moment. It's a remarkable thing to go through.
1: If people want to find out more about your work, uh, where can they do that?
2: Well, I have a website called medicinehunter.com and it has a gazillion links, and that's an official number. It has has lots and lots and lots of links to uh, my books, to uh, my talks on ayahuasca, um, my some of my hundreds of of TV TV appearances about, you know, natural medicines, including ayahuasca. I also have a uh, YouTube uh, channel, which is Chris Killam, K-I-L-H-A-M. And um, that is uh, a place where you can find a lot on ayahuasca. Actually, I've done a whole series of informational Videos there. So those are two good places to look.
1: Cool. Well, uh, thank you a lot for taking the time to talk to me.
2: It's been my great pleasure, Alex. I really appreciate it. And um, I wish you the very best.
1: Go to MedicineHunter.com to find out more about Chris Killem's work. Now we're going to listen to a track called Wide Wings of Love by the band Living Dog. The song is from the album Scavenger Angels and you can go to livingdogsongs.com to check them out if you like what you hear. All the links and some additional ones can be found on naturalbornalchemist.com So that's it for the week. Uh, See you next Sunday. Freedom is in the mind.
0: Oh, the patterns we weaved in the wind will serve to remind Of the nights with only you and the moon on my mind Well, I held my head so high when I hoped you were watching I was flying higher than there was no one Stop me. Now it's time I ride the wind down to South Florida, where they treat me as if I was not worthy of the sky. Well, it's lonely out there, but the warmth brings me some kind of comfort. When the springtime hits, I'll come looking for you in another. Ooh. Take over the world Give me a song Of the sun on my back And I'll be alright Just give me a thermal And a clear cloudless And I'll be okay fly off free of devotion I'm a child of the wind and a mother in the months when it thunders and I was a lover to you and I'll be